0: Palm Sunday. Topic this morning is our one death and our Savior's one sacrifice. And the text is Hebrews 9 27 and 28. And I hope you're all getting Bibles out. You should no more come to church without a Bible than you'd come without your, your pants. That's right. Always have a Bible. And I think when I read the text, you'll see from whence the title comes, our one death and our Savior's one sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die, there it is, once. And after that comes judgment. Judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. It'll be too late for that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's an interesting text. It seems redundant at first. I mean, we all know we do die most of us here I'm sure we know that Jesus died but our text seems to add some needless words in describing these two events the writer doesn't just say we die he labors to point out we only die once and the writer doesn't just tell us that Jesus died he says Jesus died only once so In spite of the fact that it seems kind of unnecessary, we should at least investigate the possibility that our text, it must have some reason for this peculiar approach. In fact, I think the wording of these two verses gives us a clue as to how we should interpret them. Verse 27 introduces the need for verse 28, and... and Verse 28 seems to answer to the situation cited in verse 27. I think that's made clear by the way the writer launches his thoughts with the words, and just as. He's making it clear that he's just not giving a list of ideas, but he's building a case. He's kind of constructing an argument in which the two events in 27 are somehow answered to and provided for in the two events in 28. So, so the approach of the text seems to be, just as these things happened, we all die and face judgment. So these other things have happened in response. Christ died for our sins and is coming back again. Certain things are pointed, appointed to all of us, they're unavoidable, they're hugely problematic, and these things appear to be the reason Christ came the first time and the reason he'll come a second time. That's the way those verses seem to fit together. It's made made even more pronounced by the careful and deliberate use of time words. I hope you noticed. It's appointed for man to die Once, 27. Not coincidentally, Christ has been offered once, 28. And then, just as after our one death, another event follows logically, after this comes judgment, 27. So after Christ's one death, something else follows logically. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those waiting for him, 28. So let's look at these together. And if you're visiting, you might not be used to it, but CDB people are used to those long introductions of mine. So it's just point number one right now. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We know this. I'm not stating anything new there, but it's troubling for a lot of people to reflect on that there are few things more difficult to accept than the idea that so short a time of human trial and probation should lead to such a lengthy time of judgment and reckoning. I mean, we're placed on earth, even if you have a long life. We're placed on earth for just a few short years, and yet we're told in various places in the New Testament that that the consequence or the consequences of the way we live our life in these short few years, the consequences extend for all eternity. And it seems kind of a disproportionate justice to a lot of people. For some, it leads to just increased personal indulgence in sin, with the assumption God couldn't possibly bring eternal judgment on anyone for the fleeting moments of indiscretion in this brief earthly life. And yet, the text seems pretty pointed. If words mean anything at all, it's not rocket science. If God's decree is given any plain weight, it's just starkly stated. 27, it's appointed for man to die once, After that comes judgment, and not there, but in the rest of the New Testament, it's pretty clear. We don't know all the details, but the words eternal are used over and over again, describing judgment. They come from the lips of Jesus. It's eternal judgment. So there's no probationary period extending after this life. That's the point. We die once. Death. Doesn't usher in another chance, some other time for improvement. Following this life, before anything else, there's judgment for our earthly life. Let's pretend though. What if what if there was another chance? I'm sure many are inclined to think if only we had just one more period of probation, we would enter into the second trial a lot more carefully. What if instead of dying once, the text said, we all die twice? Surely, we would give God more careful attention the second time around. If we died, saw what lay lay beyond either the glories of heaven or the fearful nature of punishment, if we died and saw what was there, if we could enter a second period of probation on earth carrying all the experiences of the first, heaven would, we think, End up much more densely populated, probably. Heavenly throngs would swell. And surely, if God were truly loving and gracious, indeed, as the Bible says, not willing that any should perish, then. Why would his love not manifest itself in this particular way? Why would it not be appointed unto man to die twice? I think that seems like a great idea. After all, even those who hadn't yet died once, a lot of us would have the benefit, the testimony of those who had already tasted the first death, seeing the reality of the eternal world, could now come back and tell others of the need for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I mean, surely this would turn the careless from their wicked ways, bring deeper attention and devotion to the Lord. If Chris died, and he goes, and he comes back, and he knocks on my office door and says, Boy, Don, you better shape up because you won't believe what lies beyond the grave. I'd shape up. Wouldn't you? But would this work? It must have been on our Lord's mind because he actually addresses the subject. I was looking at Luke 16, 27 to 31. Look it up. The he is in the account that Jesus is giving the rich man Lazarus. Some people think it's a parable. I I personally am not of the opinion that it's a parable. If it's a parable, it's the only parable in which Jesus gives names to his characters. He never does. But that's not the important point. Luke 16, 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send them to my Father's house. I have five brothers. That he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said, "Well, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them." But this guy says, well, "He says what I would have said. No, Father. But if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Do you see it?" And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets in this present life, if they aren't careful in this present life, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Note that well. If someone comes back from the dead, they won't listen, even if someone they knew, In this case, a member of their own family, okay? Not a stranger. Someone whose funeral they probably attended. Imagine. That person returns with a message of warning, of judgment to come. Not even the verified testimony of their own deceased brother can soften a sinful heart. So, no. We can be sure it isn't true that those who hadn't died once would be turned from their sins by those who were on their second time around. Well, that might be, Pastor Dom, but you've gone too quickly. It still doesn't settle it. I mean, surely, at least those who had already died once and were on their second chance, surely these at least would devote themselves to Christ. So, Eventually, we all die. Eventually, we would all get a second chance to smarten up. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. It's unlikely because of the effect of sin on the person committing it. You see, sin not only brings guilt, but just as surely as it brings guilt, it, it, it brings entropy. It brings moral blindness. It removes the capacity of repentance as surely as water removes life from a fire. And here's where that's dealt with in the Scriptures. I'm looking at Romans 1, and I'm I'm not going to read the whole context just for time's sake. I'm reading 21 and then 32. But notice these first words. See here? Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That that says more than just guilt. It's, It's talking about not seeing any way out. That's what darkness does, not being able to fix anything. Although, here it is, they know of God's decree that those who practice these things deserve to die. They know God, it says, and they know about judgment. They know about both those things. They know God, they know judgment. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice those important words, although they knew God. So their problem wasn't ignorance. Their knowledge of God and future judgment, those who practice these things deserve to die, 32. None of, neither their knowledge of God nor their knowledge of judgment, none of those things kept them from rebelling against God. Three steps cry out for notice. Their hearts were darkened, 21. They know God's decree, 32 yet they encourage deeper sin and disobedience in themselves and in others, 32. So, so this is more than merely being lured into sin. This is active rebellion with full knowledge of the consequences. Active rebellion with full knowledge of the consequences. This is the challenging of God's compass. I have an old book. I got it from my father years ago. It's by Everett Harrison. And it's on John's gospel, and it's called The Sons of God Among the Sons of Men. I've read it many times. It's starting to fall apart. don't know what I'm going to do there. And in it, he makes this comment. Listen to these words. They're brilliant. There is a spiritual law absolutely unavoidable in nature, that every time the gospel is heard and rejected, it becomes harder to accept. Understand, belief unto salvation is always possible from God's standpoint because his provision for sin stands for the repentant. But from the human standpoint, the time may come when faith is impossible due to a hardened heart. But there's still more, thinking about our Hebrews text. We all know from our one life that the chances of repentance diminish the longer sin is justified. When do any of us find sin easier to forsake? With its first commitment or years of repeated indulgence? And if someone lived his whole life knowing that it was appointed unto men to die twice, who would willingly forsake sin the first time round? Sins hold would deepen beyond words, even as we all procrastinated, planning for a second chance after our first death. You see... Think about it. If that second period of probation is to have even the appearance of an advantage, then we would have to have memory of the first life and the scene of judgment at its close. I mean, after all, that's what's alleged to have caused carelessness, carefulness the second time around. But that remembrance of our first life would also be our undoing. It means the second season of probation would be entered into, not only with the fallen nature with which we lived the first life, but also with a conscience seriously hardened through the baggage of an entire life of sinful practice because we were banking on a second chance. Desires, habits would emerge fully formed. So however hard it was to forsake sin in the first life, it would be way harder to forsake it in the second life. Do you see what I'm saying? The second probationary period would be lived with moral senses even more blunted than the first. So we're beholding not the unreasonableness of God in decreeing that we all die just once. It's nothing but his wisdom, his compassion. The effects of sin are put on a shorter leash. We're told in advance we must live this life with devotion and earnestness. In advance, we are told in love that it's appointed to die once, and after that comes judgment. So the preciousness of each single day encourages us to invest each one with eternal significance. So no, it wouldn't work. But there's something else in the text, point number two. Just as we die only once, so Christ was offered only once to bear the sins of many. It's right there. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So the first part of the sequence we've studied. The awful fact of death is made so final in that we only do it once. You may miss a lot of appointments in life. You will not miss this one. So serious is our fall into sin, so relentless its grip that it drags us all down equally and finally to the grave. The text is just too blunt to ignore. It's appointed for man to die once. And it's it's precisely to shift our attention from our one death that the apostle uses the very same term to describe Christ's death on my behalf, having been offered once 28 to bear the sins of many. we're we're, we're meant to see he need not die again to bring forgiveness or payment for any of those sins or all of them combined together that drag us down to the grave. There is something precious here, church. If Christ died to bring an end to sin's reign and if his death brought not only forgiveness of my guilt, but actually conquered the power of death. And if he offered the sacrifice only once, then there is nothing else to be done to save Don Horban from both sin and the grave. There is nothing else to be done. Please hear this and rejoice. Imagine... Let me say it this way. Maybe it'll stay in your minds. Imagine the Father's heart, our creator God, the creator's heart, more full of loving concern than any could ever imagine. That heart. That heart that would have done absolutely anything and would have gladly done it a thousand times had it been necessary. That great divine heart and mind could not think of One more thing to do to save Don Horbin from sin and death. He couldn't think of anything else that needed to be done. It's done. This, in fact, is the whole argument of this great chapter in Hebrews, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But but as it is, here's how it is. Here's the same word, he has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Last point, I'm almost done. Point number three. People who understand this are eagerly awaiting Jesus to come back a second time. Last part of 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, just as surely as he came the first. Not to deal with sin, that's been dealt with but to save those who are eagerly i love that eagerly awaiting for him i want to say this i want to say it carefully but with all my heart i believe i believe the church is right on the edge i don't mean this church i mean the church is right on the edge of losing its grip on what the New Testament calls the blessed hope, the triumphant second coming of Jesus back to this earth. And and please note that last sentence. I fear, and this fear is reinforced at the vast majority of Christian funerals that I attend, that we center more attention on our dying and going to be with Jesus than on Jesus coming back to this earth. Well, Pastor Don, read your Bible. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. But read it. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what happens next? I will will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. True enough, I'm not denying True enough and precious through and through is the teaching that those who die in the Lord go to be with Jesus. That's where my mom is. That's where my dad is. Which is far better, the Bible says. And yes, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Absolutely true. But, but that's not what I'm yearning for. Here's why. My dying and going to be with Jesus... As wonderful as that is, hear me, does nothing to rid this world of sin and rebellion. This world is completely unchanged at my departure. My dying and going to be with Jesus does nothing to bring this whole Christ rejecting world to its knees and acknowledge my Jesus as their Lord and Savior. My dying and going to Jesus does nothing to undo the fall and the rule of Satan and war and sickness and hatred and disease and bondage to a thousand false religions. And I long for all these things. And my dying to go with Jesus isn't going to bring one of them about. But his coming will. It's going to change everything. That's why the writer says eagerly awaiting for him. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. I want my loved one's bodies coming out of the grave. None of that happens with me going to be with Jesus at my death. I am longing for God's finished work of a new creation. I'm waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. Wherein dwells righteousness. Have you watched the news? Do you see what's going on? Don't you ever just say, come Lord Jesus, fix this. Second coming, it used to be talked about a lot more than it is now. I want this church to help change that. The second coming of Jesus isn't the same as the Christian's death and departure. The second coming of Jesus is better. It's way better. Remember, we don't just believe in life after death. We are all longing for the life after the life after death. Everybody said?